I, uh, I think that worship is one of those things that we just do not do enough, well enough. And I mean by that, I mean it's just like prayer. Prayer is ongoing. Worship is ongoing. It doesn't stop. It's not for an hour or for a few moments. It is an ongoing thing. Just like prayer is communing with God, so worship is communing with God, which only makes sense because prayer and worship fit together, hand in glove. They're inseparable. You don't let anybody ever tell you otherwise. We have been talking about uh, about fuel and about about how we need to be in this constant state of prayer and constantly increasing our capacity. If we think of God as the engine of life and the, the, the true, you can't go anywhere without an engine. Okay, well, you got to put fuel in the engine. Well, fuel is prayer and we, we, we connect with God and there's this firing action that our capacity grows and increases, that our capabilities go to further depths and heights that we've never gone before, that even our impact will go to places that we've never gone before. Now, I started this series and shared this with uh, with everyone. And one of the members in our first gathering, Brian Martin, who's tinkers with cars, plays with cars, even owns a couple of businesses or manages a couple of businesses related to fixing cars. So he is all about cars. He sent out this little email to his men's group and talked about the different grades of fuel. Now, I didn't know. I just went up, put my card in and fill my car up. I know, I know that the one's more expensive and I don't want to go with that one. I want to go with the cheaper one because I'm a cheapie uh, when it comes to that. But then he explained in this email. So I asked him, I said, hey man, can I share that? Like I actually know what I'm talking about and, and pretend something to the people. He, he gave me complete permission. So he talks about in this email, the different grades of fuel, regular being the most basic minimum standards of fuel out there. It's the kind of fuel you put in your lawnmower. It's the kind of fuel you put in your hedger, okay? When you're trying to whack off those dandelions that grow up in the year, you just put a little bit of uh, regular uh, medium, minimum grade fuel in your lawnmower and you you, you do it. And, and if your mower, mower breaks down or your fuel goes bad and it's still in your fuel lines, you just go get a new mower. I mean, a couple hundred dollars or a hundred dollars at Walmart and you're rocking and rolling again. But then there's different grades. You go on up from there. Then, then there's the mid-grade fuel. That's a little bit more power in the mid-grade fuel. It costs more. See, I act like I know what I'm talking about here. I'm reading his email. And, uh, and then you go on up from that, you go to premium grade. And some cars, literally their engines will run better because the engines are built this way that they will run better. Even though it costs more, it's a higher grade, higher power. Your car will run at a better, uh, better e- e- economy and also greater power if you put in the high, uh, higher octane fuel. But he also said this to me. It was very interesting that he said that if your engine isn't strong enough, big enough, putting in a higher octane fuel does not make your car run better does not make you reach greater capacity. In fact, you're wasting throwing away money if your engine is small and weak to put in a higher grade of octane fuel will not make it any better. Hang on to that thought for just a moment. Then there's racing fuel. Now this, you and I can't go find, okay? We're not gonna pull up in our little Fiat and say, hey, put racing fuel in my Fiat and it's gonna go run circles uh, uh, around everyone else. It, it does 
doesn't work that way. So you don't go up to a gas station and ask for racing fuel. Uh, you have to know somebody who knows somebody to get racing fuel. It's led. It's, it's exclusively for racing cars. Okay, NASCAR think that kind of Indy 500 think that kind of grade of fuel that really has a lot of torque and a lot of power behind it. But then there's even a greater. It's called heavyweight or heavy fuel that is actually used in jet airplanes. Jet airplanes take this fuel to be able to take off, to be able to go at the speed of sound, literally jet planes, fighter pilots fly with this jet fuel. And this is incredibly expensive, but incredibly powerful. Now, here's the question I want you to ask yourself as we're far enough into this series. Is my prayer lawnmower fuel or is it jet fuel? Do I, do I circle the globe at the speed of sound? Do I impact the nations on the other side of the world? Can I pray for the president? Can I pray for people and see change? Or am I just kind of the lawnmower, low-grade, minimum standard? I just kind of pray around the yard. I just kind of pray close to home. I don't really envision prayer really doing much. And again, you put minimum grade fuel in the fastest jet airplane out there or a rocket or a missile or any other thing out there that requires that level of fuel. It's not going to go that way. But we have a God who is a jet engine God. We don't need to be putting minimum prayer, minimum fuel, bare minimum, bare cheapest, easily accessible fuel into a jet God. And the problem is that I'm afraid that so many of us have such a low view of what prayer means because we have such a small view of God. We have a weed eater view of God when God is a jet engine that can circle the world and impact people and nations in incredible ways as we pray. Our fuel increases our capacity, increases our capabilities, and increases our impact. Ron Dunn got this, he said it so well, years ago, book out of print. I happen to have a copy. He says, don't just stand there, pray something. This is what he said. He said, I discovered that prayer is like a secret weapon of the kingdom of God. It is like a missile that can be fired toward any spot on earth, travel undetected at the speed of thought and hit its target every time. It can even be armed with a delayed detonation device. I love it that I can be here in little old northwest Arkansas and that I can send a prayer towards the heavens and it will, in the speed of thought, pierce the heavens being mediated by my, my mediator, Jesus Christ, hit into the heart of God, come through the heart of God and hit a village in Africa and began to do a work there that I couldn't do if I worked a hundred years. What can prayer do whenever we take jet-powered, high-octane fuel and we engage it with a high-octane, jet-powered God that can do incredible things? He can even do things with a delayed detonation. Think about that for a moment. When Jesus in his true Lord's Prayer, not the Lord's Prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer, that's more the model prayer. We talked about that the first week. But the true Lord's Prayer is actually John 17. You want to study prayer? Go study John 17 on your own because you'll find Jesus not only did he need to pray as the God of the universe, 
should be an answer to us that we need to be people of prayer. But he also prayed for people. He, he, he realized people need prayer. And so what he does in most of that time, he spends praying for the people, not only connecting with God in this communion with God, but also praying for people on the other side of the world, people that were closest to him. In fact, I will dare say this, he was even praying for you and me in John 17, verse 20. I do not ask that these only, but I also for those who will believe in me. Just imagine for a second that Jesus, when he's praying years and years and years ago, thousands of years ago, that he might just might have had you and me on his mind, that he just might have been praying that one of these days, Mike McDaniel is going to believe in me and oh God, make him a disciple of me. Can you imagine that for a second? Because no, most of us don't imagine it because we have this lawnmower view of God. We put it with minimum octane. We don't have that humongous jet engine view of God and we need to grow our prayer to a level that it's never been before. When you look at, and we've looked at several different passages on prayer, Jesus and his model prayer, that's a great place to start. We've also looked at James, the skeptic of Jesus, the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus, who was a skeptic for a number of years, but yet he gives us the greatest exhortation, the most comprehensive, densely packaged uh, package on prayer and how to pray. But he then also... We're going to go to Paul today, and we're going to see where Paul was a person who prayed for others. He was, he was a person who realized that people in his world, in his life, they needed prayer. It's one of the things that we need to wake up to the reality. Our kids need prayer. Our neighbors need prayer. Our work, our boss needs prayer. Our president needs prayer. God help him. We, 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 Congress needs prayer. We realize that we got to be about prayer. Forty different times you find Paul praying in scripture for others. In fact, I want to encourage you, if you're looking for another Bible study to do, take a picture of that. If you can decode those numbers, you got Romans and you got second Corinthians, you got Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and first Thessalonians and second Thessalonians and first Timothy and second Timothy and Titus and Philemon. And you find again and again and again and again, Paul is in a constant state of praying for, rejoicing in, thanking for, on and on and on as a person praying for others. Now let's take our Bibles and let's be looking at the book of Colossians. We'll be there in just a moment because I want to take you to the prayer that Paul prayed for a church in Colossae. Kind of the interior of uh, modern day Turkey today. And it's a place that we know that Paul traveled a lot. He went on three different missionary journeys. The first missionary journey took him to the Galatia region from Antioch to Galatia. It's kind of in that middle of Turkey kind of region that we would look at today. And he went there and then he goes back to Antioch. The next time, second missionary journey, he and Silas go out and they go even further out. They circle back through the Galatia region. They touch base with those churches. They love them. They had, they had great respect for them. They had a great relationship with them. They reconnected with them and they stop in Ephesus. When they get to Ephesus, Ephesus becomes kind of the launching pad for Paul's ministry and his second missionary journey. He stays at Ephesus three years, but he goes throughout the region. He goes over to Greece, over to, over to Corinth. He goes to Thessalonica. He goes to these different places on that second missionary journey, but one of the places that he never goes, we have no historical record of him going, is to a city called Colossae. It was actually a kind of a 
kind of a northwest Arkansas feel of, a, of an area, right in one area where we have Bentonville, Springdale, Rogers, Fayetteville. We had this kind of metropolitan area. Well, there was a, a, a city of three. There was a Laodicea, there was a Hierapolis, and then there was Colossae. And these three cities are just located right there together. But Paul never goes to Colossae. But yet Paul writes an entire letter to the church at Colossae. So what's the deal here? Paul has this incredible relationship, and we pick this up, with a guy named Epaphras. Epaphras meets and hangs out with Paul. Paul leads him to faith in Christ in Ephesus while he is there. When he leads Epaphras to Christ, he also begins to disciple him. See, Paul was just not making converts. He was making disciples. He was pouring his life into people. He was praying for others. Well, Epaphras learns through the life of Paul's life of prayer. He learns how to pray himself. And this is one of the words that we we find out about Epaphras in chapter 4, verse 12. Sounds a lot like Paul. Epaphras, who is one of you. He's from you. He's, He's one of you. He is your pastor. A servant of Christ, Jesus, greets you. Notice what he's always doing. He's always struggling on your behalf in prayers. So Paul prayed for others. Paul raised up his disciples to pray for others. Even Pastor Epaphras was praying for his people while he was with, with Paul in Rome, while, Rome while, while Paul's in prison. Epaphras is there and they're sending this letter back and they're sending the letter back saying, hey, listen, I want to let you know that your pastor has not stopped praying for you. In fact, he is struggling he is working, he is laboring, he is sweating, he is agonizing. See, prayer is not some laissez-faire, do it when it feels good kind of thing. It is a labor. It's something sometimes that we get into and we literally sweat. Jesus, sweat drops like blood. But here's what I want you to see about this quick narrative, is that Paul was a disciple who made disciples. Paul led Epaphras to the Lord And then disciples Epaphras, Epaphras, notice this, goes back home where Paul never goes. I have no record of him going. And he, Epaphras, disciples, leads to faith in Christ, the the city, the people of Colossae, and maybe even Laodicea that we see in the book of Revelation. But you see this thing happening. What do you see? You see a disciple who makes disciples. Isn't that a novel idea? This is exactly what Jesus said that we are to do. This is exactly what he modeled for us. It's exactly what Paul is doing. He is a disciple who makes a disciple. And I will tell you this. If you call yourself a disciple because you read the Bible, because you have a prayer list, because you go to church on Sunday, because you throw some coins in the offering basket, maybe you even tithe. Just because you are doing the right thing doesn't mean you are a disciple. Because a disciple makes disciples. And if they are not, they aren't disciples. That is a standard of which I did not create. If you're a person who's just cleaning up your life, you're sanitizing your life. You're getting your life right with God. 
But a real disciple is one who makes disciples who makes disciples. Look at 2 Timothy 2, uh, 22 on your own time because that is the standard, the gold standard in which Paul was doing. And Paul was doing this at Epaphras as he was making him a person of prayer just as Paul was a person of prayer. Let's read the, the prayer that Paul prayed for these people. By the way, he had never met. Let me emphasize that again. He didn't know their faces. He didn't know their stories. He didn't know their, their background. He didn't know their wounds. He didn't know their ups and downs. He did not know them. But look how he prays for them. Notice the intensity and the fervency of it. Verse 9 of chapter 1. And so from that day we heard. He hadn't experienced them. He had heard of them. We have not ceased to pray for you. This is not just a one-off prayer. This is not an occasional prayer. This is not when I think about it. Paul literally had an intentional plan that he was not going to stop praying for the believers in Colossae. And then he gives very specifically how he prayed for them, that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And the prayer goes on. Now, if you want to get a full dialogue on this prayer, a full breakdown of this prayer, you need to go back in October when, when Brett Ferguson was here on the stage and taught this incredible message on this prayer. But I just want to give you just a taste, just a morsel today to show you that Paul prayed for others. But Paul not only prayed for others, we need to pray for others. You see around this room, these are the cards that you have submitted over the past year. And I mentioned that in the very first week. And it's been incredible to hear from you how God has answered some of your prayers. Some of your requests when you needed prayer, we were praying with you and for you. And you had other people praying and God was hearing. He was responding. And then I've heard from others. It's like, you know what? My prayer request that's on that board still belongs on that board because I'm still struggling. I still don't have the answer that I thought. And I, I know and I get, I wish I, I could tell you that in X number of days and X number of prayers, and, and this is the right formula. And then all the thin, all the combinations and everything will work out. It doesn't. It doesn't work that way. Because prayer is not me communicating to God. And finally, when I break through and get through the, the busy signals and I get through not being able to reach heaven, that finally He will hear me and then finally He will give it to me. No, it is communing with God. Where even in my tragedy, pain, loss, hurt, even in my lost job, lost relationship, lost hopes and dreams, even in my whatever it is, He is still hearing I'm still communing with him. I'm still connecting with him. Paul prayed for others, but I want you to see this today. Others prayed for Paul. And if Paul, the apostle, who led the charge of one of the greatest movements on the planet, if Paul prayed and led other people to pray, but Paul turns around and you see a vulnerability in Paul today, that even he needs prayer then every single one of us need the same. None of us are excluded. And there are times that I don't even know who these people are that, that, that turn them in. You turned them in or people have been visiting from out of town and they turn them in. And we'll never see them again this side of heaven. I will never know if those, those prayers get answered. And I don't know them, but listen, I pray with the same fervency as if it was my child. With the same reality as if it was my story that I was praying for. Because I realize that there's a real person with real needs on the other end of that prayer. But the thing is, is I tell people this. Listen, you don't know who to pray for, pray for me. One is I need the prayer and you need the practice. So look at it like that. So if you don't know what to pray, just pray something. 
and God will figure it out from there. But let's look at Colossians 4. We're in chapter 1. Now let's go to chapter 4. We've been in this study back in the fall. We're going to wrap it up today. And it says in chapter 4, verse 2, we find where Paul helps us to upgrade our prayer life. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us. Notice his appeal. Notice his request. I need prayer. I need prayer. That God may open to us a door. That the word declare, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. So Paul was in prison in Rome because he had been sharing the gospel. That I may make clear, I don't want to muddy the waters, I want clarity, I want conviction, I want to do this right. You need to help that my, my, my mouth will move and say the words that they need to say, which is how I ought to speak and walk in wisdom toward outsiders, those outside the faith, those not yet following Christ, those you work with, those that you live right next door to, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. How is it that I have a jet engine God and I can have lawnmower fuel? And expect God to do global, incredible works. I need to upgrade my fuel, upgrade my prayer to match the engine of the God that I love and serve. So let's talk about upgrading our prayer life today. How do we increase the octane of our, of our prayer life? And some of these things may seem a little redundant. I've said it last week. I said it the week before or something like that. Listen, it's not redundant. It's reinforcement. If you notice that Paul's saying the same thing, James is saying the same thing that Jesus is saying, there's some redundancy that is good. It's healthy. And the very first thing is actually one of those things that may seem a little bit redundant, but notice this, it's more that. It's a reinforcement. How do I upgrade my prayer life? How do I increase the, the impact of my prayer life? One is lifestyle. It requires continuous prayer. A lifestyle prayer life, a ongoing prayer life that never ends. Listen, let's all embrace the fact today that we all pray. Okay, everyone in this room I know is praying. You answer surveys that way. We're all, listen, they took prayer out of public schools a long time ago, but as long as there's tests in schools, there will be prayer in school. You know that. As long as there are children in the home and adolescents to raise, parents will be praying. So prayer is not something I'm asking you, do you pray? You pray. I know you pray, whether it's the 911 calls to God to heaven or it's the breaking the glass and pulling down the alarm uh, that, God, I need your help. Studies have said that people, more people pray in a week than they work, exercise, have sexual relations even. 13% of Americans who claim to be atheists and agnostic, one in five, pray daily. Even atheists who don't believe in God are praying. So here, I want you to kind of draw a line in the sand and answer this question for yourself. Is my prayer a lifestyle 
or is a lifeline? Is my prayer a lifestyle or a lifeline? Think about that for a moment. Because if it's a lifeline, it's, it's what connects you to life. It's that life support. It's, it's that thing that keeps you breathing when you can't breathe on your own. It's that element. And some of you all have walked with family members through this as I've walked with church members through this. It's not the quality of life that you're looking for. Your family members are looking for. It's not what any of us would want to even spend the rest of our days on. It's a difficult thing but they're still alive. And for some people, prayer is little more than that. It's just a lifeline. It keeps them connected. It keeps them breathing. They go to God. But what, what, what really is Paul saying here? He's saying it needs to be a lifestyle. It needs to be something of who you are and what you do on an ongoing, never-ending basis. Verse 2, the very first phrase, continue steadfastly in prayer. Say it with me. Continue steadfastly in prayer. The the, the King James Version says it's something like this. Continue earnestly. The Amplified Version says be earnest and unwearied and steadfast in your prayer life. It's something, how, how many ways can I say it? It is ongoing. It is the lifestyle. It's the life that we live. We don't necessarily have to be told to pray. We just pray. I've said before that the Greek language is in, in the New Testament is written in Greek. It is built around and impacts itself around the verbs. The verb, understand the verb, you understand the rest of the sentence. In this passage of Scripture, the key verb in which all, all other statements that will come off of it is this phrase, continue steadfastly in prayer. It is a present active imperative. Present, it's happening right now. It's not happening tomorrow. It's not happening yesterday. For some people, that's how we measure our prayer. When was the last time I prayed? And when will I pray again? Instead of living in a state of present praying, present active. It's something that's not something that I do or or you do for me. It's something that I do. I am praying. And it's an imperative. It's not optional. It's a part of who we are. It's an urgency about it. There's 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 an absolute preeminence about prayer whenever it is a lifestyle. It's one of those those things that becomes a tempo, a rhythm, a pattern, a discipline, a habit. It becomes a part of who you are where you almost go about prayer as if you go about breathing. You don't have to have a prayer meeting. You just pray and you meet with God. That is what beautiful prayer is. That's what lifestyle prayer looks and feels and smells like. Now, I just wanted to be really kind of transparent with you today, kind of talk about how do I pray? Because there's sometimes you just got to get to the brass tacks. You say, okay, Mike, I know I need to increase my prayer octane. I need to increase the quality of my prayer. What does that look like for you? So mine's not perfect, but it's mine, okay? And I think you need to own yours. But here's just a couple of things. You can jot them down. You can do it if you want. But here's one of the tools that I use for prayer. I know it's one of the biggest distractions to prayer. But what I do every morning, I get up at 430 God forbid that you would get into that pattern, but um, that's my time. That's nine times out of the week. That's when I'm awake. Even if I don't have an appointment to get up for, I'm awake at that time. So I get up, have a shower, grab my coffee, get in my chair, and that's my time with God. But one of the things I do is I open my calendar. And what happens is, this is Monday. You, I can't even fit Monday all on the screen tomorrow. But what I will do is I will take Monday and I will pray through Monday. This becomes less of a to-do list and more of a prayer calendar for me. 
So if I'm meeting with somebody, if I have a meeting and I have that, that's an important debriefing on that one. That's really important for us. It's really important for, uh, there's, that, there's that time that I've got marked off every day that I'm going to pray. There's that time in the evening when Lori's away at, uh, uh, and that I'm going to spend time in prayer. So this is where this becomes my prayer list for the day instead of my worry list, my to-do list, my occupied time list. That's one of the ways that I pray. Another way is on this little baby is my Evernote app. Evernote's my favorite, uh, probably my favorite app. It's my second brain. It kind of keeps everything. And what I've done is I've created files in there and I have prayer files. Every day of the week, I'm praying differently. I pray basically using the outline of Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Where I realized then I'm going to pray for my Jerusalem, I'm going to pray for my Judea, my Samaria, and then I'm going to pray for the ends of the earth. And in different parts, uh, 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 I have it. I have it segmented off. I have names written out. I have different prayer requests under each one. So my Jerusalem, those are the ones that are closest to me. Those are my family members. Those are what my one another brothers. These are the ones that I'm in their junk and they're in my junk and they have to deal with my junk. You know, so I'm praying that they will be able to have patience with me as I'm in my junk. So you know, I those are the ones that are the closest ones to. Me, I have different days that I pray for my kids, and I have very spelled out prayer requests for my kids given the season and the time of life that they're in. Then I go on to Judea. My Judea is really where Jerusalem was in Judea. It was a larger circle around Judea. And that's where I pray for those that are further out in my circle, but still yet very close to me. I pray for the pastoral team members. I pray for the deacons and the trustees. I pray for the leadership of our church. In fact, there's different days. If you're on and fit into any of those categories and you're on any of our teams and in those areas, you better believe that one of those days I have a day that I'm praying for you. So do not call me during that time. I may interrupt my prayer for you on that day. And so that's my time to pray for you. And I draw that circle out even further to my Samaria. That's, that's kind of the, the, the North America area. I've got church planners in Boston. I know churches in L.A. I've got people that I, that I know in different parts of the world and believers and unbelievers, family members that are further out, and I pray for them. And then it says, you will be my witnesses to the uttermost parts of the earth. Every day of the week, I'm praying for a missionary, either that's from our church or a people group or I'm praying for somebody. I, I, I love even taking that time as I'm finishing up my prayer time and shooting them a quick note and just saying, hey, I want to let you know I prayed for you today and this is how I prayed for you. So that's just me. That's how I work. Make a plan though. Make a plan, work the plan, and the plan will work. I'll tell you this, if you don't plan to pray, you won't pray. That may seem a little bit too mechanical for you. At any time, I can throw that aside and do my own thing and go with the winds of the Spirit on any given day. But I have a plan because I want to be continuously, steadfastly praying. So that's the first thing. Awareness is the second. There's an awareness factor in prayer. There's an attentiveness. My antenna is up. I'm looking around as I'm driving down the road, as I'm walking in the hallways, as I'm dealing with people, uh, as, I'm, as I'm having lunch appointments, as I'm meeting with people over coffee, or as I'm just sitting alone, studying somewhere, and I see things. I'm attentive to what's going on, and I'm also attentive to the temptations that are around me. Notice what he says in verse 2. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful. 
You remember the story when Jesus was with his disciples and he let, let his disciples stay there, but he took Peter, James, and John a little bit further and they were in his sacred place there in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, hey guys, you stay here and you watch and you pray. And he went on a little bit further and he stayed awake and he dripped, uh, uh, dripped sweat like blood in it because he was so intense in his prayer. And then he goes back and what does he see? His disciples asleep. Wakes them up three different times. You got to watch him pray lest you enter into temptation. You see, if we don't keep our eyes open and understand that everything around us is spiritual, that we're living in a spiritual world, that this is going on around us, we got to realize that this is life and life is out to get us and Satan is the one who is behind it. If you don't believe me that, then go to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 because this is what Peter said, and just think, he had to be reflecting on what Jesus said because Jesus said, listen, you need to watch and pray, Peter, lest you enter into temptation. But then he said this, because Satan is wanting to sift you like wheat. And then Jesus turns right around and says, but Peter, I have prayed for you. I have prayed for you. So Peter says this later on in his own writings. He says, be sober in spirit, be on the alert. The word alert there is the same word for watching. Watch, be alert. Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Number three, to increase the impact on my prayer life, I need to increase the thankfulness in my prayer life. This is worshipful prayer. You you notice right over in the margin of your Bible or in in your notes, Romans chapter one, verse 21. When the people began to deteriorate and began to fall away from God and began to turn away from God, one of the very first things that happens is ungratefulness enters in. Thankfulness leaves, ungratefulness enters in. And there's a sense of entitlement that comes in. There's a sense of, it belongs to me that comes in. There's a sense of pride that comes in. And it's a very dangerous posture that we've got to be very alert on. Because here's what happens, if you notice what he said there, continue steadfastly in prayer, being Watchful with thanksgiving. See, we we really don't have a problem to take from God. What problem is, is when we forget to be thankful to God. Or we'll take from God and assess whether or not it was what we wanted, how we wanted it, when we wanted it. But are we willing to go be thankful to God with whatever He gave us in the day that He gave it to us? He maybe didn't give us everything. We wanted needed a desire. But he gave us what he gave us because that's what we needed that day. In fact, it may have been all we could have handled that day. And that may be a character issue in us. Take your Bibles over to Luke chapter 17 or scroll over there if you will. I want you to be able to see this because this is probably one of the most telling passages that just convicts me to no end. This is a time when Jesus heals 10 lepers. And on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. If you remember, Samaria is on the way from Galilee to the north, Samaria to the south, and below that was Jerusalem. Most Jews went around Samaria because that was the wrong side of the tracks. No Jew would go through Samaria, but Jesus liked to go through Samaria. He had no problem with the races and the divides there, ethnicity or anything. 
And as he entered into the village, he was met, we don't even know the name of the village, but he was met by 10 lepers, probably a leper's colony because lepers did not live with common people, healthy people, because their their disease was so toxic and contagious that they would keep them to themselves. So it was an unnamed village where there was unnamed 10 lepers and Jesus is walking through and they lifted up their voices saying, Master, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. What do they do? They pray, God, would you heal us? I love it. What does Jesus do? And when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourself to the priest. The answer was, yes, you're already healed. Now go to the priest and he'll confirm it. Because for you to come out of the leper colony and live in society again, you had to be confirmed by a priest that, yes, he is truly a clean and healthy person. Then one of them, notice the math here. I can even do this math. It's really pretty easy. I can do it on two hands. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back. I love it. He turns back and he praises God. His experience with God turned him to worship of God. He turns back to God with a loud voice. He fell on his face at the feet of Jesus, giving thanks. Now he was a Sumerian. And Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? One was thankful. Ten were blessed. One was thankful. My friends, I say this to you in the deepest love. We can be some of the most un thankful of God's creation. Whether it's health, wealth, or wisdom, God's provision, if it's just day to day, may we not be the nine that fails to give thanks to God. May we be the one who falls on their face, worships God, can't get enough. When I come in here, I don't want the band to do my worship for me. It's not their job to worship for me and me sit there and watch them do the job for me. It's me to learn the songs, to sing the songs, to be in the prayers, to be engaged in it. It's me bringing my worship to God. They're just prompting me. It's not when the offering is passed that I just kind of watch it. Maybe it'll it'll miss my road today, you know, whatever. It's me saying, God, you have blessed me. How have you blessed me? I want to give back to you as an act of worship to you. Why is it that we are so ungrateful? We expect so much from God. See, Thanksgiving is an attitude, but it always leads to an action. It's an attitude. It's a perspective that always leads to an expression. The old hymn said, count your many blessings, name them one by one. What's the next phrase? Do you remember it? And it will surprise you what the Lord has done. We need to take note. Increase the octane. Increase the thankfulness. And lastly, there's an assertiveness in prayer. It's not me demanding of God. It's not that level of assertiveness. It's me advancing. Notice when we're in the the Lord's prayer, he said, my kingdom come, my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're literally called to pray God's kingdom to advance on the earth. We're called to express our prayers in advancing, pushing out the darkness. 
But yet I'm afraid we've relegated it to some kind of intercom system to call down blessings into our life. This is what Piper said. He said, prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. It is not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts in the den. It's time for us to decommission the home intercom system and recommission and re-energize and restore prayer as an advancing tool in the kingdom of God against the darkness of Satan. Instead of criticizing the president, we need to pray for the president. We're told to do that. Instead of criticizing our employee, we need to pray for our employee. We need to push against the immorality of our society. Yes, we do that first of all through prayer. If we haven't prayed first, we need to keep our trap shut. Paul calls us in Colossians, and you see the vulnerability of Paul when he turns our attention and he says this, pray for us. At the same time, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word. He gives us three things to pray for. When we're going to advance the kingdom of God in this world, we pray for three things. One, notice he prays for open doors. Open doors doors. Look there again, that God may open to us a door for the word. He, he has a desire that, that he would be able to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to go to people who had not yet heard of the gospel. When you came in, grab your cards, if you don't mind, you came in and were, were given a card. And all across the stage, there are, there are more cards. I want to explain these cards to you. These are not trading cards or Pokemon cards or anything like that. Here, I have, I have the, uh, the, the Kwanka people of Nigeria. Let me just tell you how many of there. There's 30,000 of them, and less than 2% of those are followers of Jesus. I have another people group from Nigeria, 9,600 of them, and less than 2% of those are followers of Jesus. This stage is full of cards, and there will be other cards, guys, if you'll go ahead and bring them, because you all received a card. Let me explain to you the card. You have a card like nobody else. Nobody else in this room today has the card you have. Nobody else in the previous service has the card you have. You have a very unique card. This is the only card printed with this people group on it. Now, what if for a skinny minute, or what if for the next three months, You owned this people group. This was your people group. And if you did not pray for this people group, if you did not understand the lostness of this people group, if you maybe would do the research on this people group and you would understand them to the point that, hey, I'm going to pray for them every single day. I'm going to pray that missionaries will be able to make it into northern Nigeria. And I will be, I will pray that in, in India, the, the Hindu uh, people of the I can't even pronounce that name. Uh, the, the, the Kahati Indians uh, of India there. Uh, the, 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 the dole of India here. Uh, the, the list goes on and on. What if we saw these as people in desperate need of Jesus? And even though like Paul prayed for the people of Colossae and he had never seen them before, you may never see the Jata Kara of India, but yet there are 402,000 of them without Christ. Who will pray for them? I'm not trying to be dramatic. 
but I am trying to show you the level of lostness and the fact that we, as followers of Christ, have the power to pray to a God who loves them as much as He loves you. And He wants them to worship Him as much as He wants you to worship Him. Let's pray for open doors. Contrary to popular opinion, Randy Sprinkle, former prayer coordinator for the IMB, said, contrary to popular opinion, missionaries are not the ones who open the areas where people don't have access to the gospel. Mission prayers are the ones who open the breach. Missionaries come in behind them. What if we prayed for them? At 1040 every morning on my phone, I get an alert that I set. If you don't know how to do it, bring me your phone. I'll set a 1040 alert. And I pray for the 1040 window where most of these people live on the earth. Everybody, I get a new people group. I read them and I pray for them. Pray for open doors that the gospel will be able to go there. Number two, pray for open mouths that the gospel will be able to be shared. See, the evangel is silent until the evangelist comes. It is not something that just happens in a vacuum. But Paul said this. He said, pray that I may make it clear. I, I want to make it with conviction. I want to make it with clarity. I want, the, I want the peoples of the earth to know who Jesus is. Pray for open Mouths open doors, but also pray for open lives. And he said this, and I close, he says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Basically, live your life well so that outsiders will look at you and go, I want to be like him. I want to be like her. I like the way he treats his wife. I like the way she loves on her husband. I like the way that they parent their children. I like the morals and ethics of their home. I like the peace that seems to resonate in all that they do. I like the joy that comes out of them. I want to be like them. What if we lived our lives in such a way that people started asking questions? How can I have the God that you have? That's powerful prayer. So you have a card. Everyone should have a card. Turn it over. You should have a blank card. I want you to think of a name of a person in your circle of influence right now who is far from God, far from God, without Christ, not yet a believer, in your circles of influence. Could be somebody you work with, live with, could be a child. Just like Jesus prayed for those who would one day believe, would you consider praying for the person who's not yet believed? Would you Put their name down. I'm I'm serious. Right now. Do it right now. Don't do it when you get home. Do it now. I want you to be thinking about who is that person in my life right now, in my circles of influence, that that the first name that that God brings to my mind, that I'm I'm fearful if they died today, they may not spend eternity with God, that I'm literally going to become emotional about it if I think about it too long. And I'm going to pray for them. It could be your relative that's near unto death. could be a new child that was just born. I don't know. I want you to put them down. And I want you to pray for them with the same fervency that you pray for them. I want you to think about them and pray, God, give me an open door. Give me an open mouth. Give me an open life that you will do your work in them. Listen, prayer changes things. It changes people.
and people change things. Would you bow your head with me right now? We're going to have a time of prayer. All across the stage are literally millions of people that nobody was here to claim them. You may feel led in the course of three months to pray for two people groups. You might have two friends and you write the other name on the other back of the other card and you pray for them. During our prayer time, you might say, you know what, I've been, I've been praying through what my intentional discipleship plans and goals are for the coming next three months. From now till Easter, I'm going to pray for my unbelieving friend that I will have an open door, an open mouth, and an open life, that they will be able to see Jesus in me, that I will be able to speak Jesus to them, that I will even have the opportunity to speak to them. Between now and Easter that they will maybe have that opportunity to come to faith in Christ. There are IDPs or the intentional discipleship plans across the front here. You can grab them. You can grab another card to pray for them. You, you can come and kneel here at the front. This is going to be your time of prayer where we're asking you to pray fervently. Father God, There's not a name, there's not a people group up there. Even if I can't pronounce their name, you know their name. You know their story. And every single one of these needs you. Just like one day, some time past, I needed you. And I still need you today. But I gave myself to you. Lord, would you help us in this room to see this world as you see it? To see our neighbors as you see it. Our networks, our family members as you see them. For the sake of your name and for more worshipers of you, would you do a work? Would you hear our prayers?